My name is Peter Tomasi, Head of Product Marketing at Vita, and your host in this series of conversations featuring creative thinkers and doers from around the world, who as co-creators in the Vita community are reimagining the world of art, design, technology, and fashion. Vita, for those of you new to us, is a collaboration between creatives and makers around the world to bring unique, original apparel and accessories, creating beauty every step of the way. I cannot think of a better way to launch Vita's first podcast than with today's guest. Cynthia St. James is a prolific visual artist, designer, author, educator, songwriter, actor, and playwright. Her work has been seen not only on canvas, but in places both unusual and everyday, including U.S. embassies around the world, the size of Los Angeles metro rail trains, the 225 guest rooms of the Marriott Aruba Ocean Club, and marketing campaigns for companies and nonprofits like Coca-Cola, YWCA of Greater Los Angeles, Barnes & Noble, and AARP. Her work adorns the covers of more than 75 books, and she herself is the author or illustrator of 17 children's books, several poetry and affirmation books, a cookbook, a play, a monologue, and two marketing books. In her latest book, Living My Dream, the 50th Anniversary Celebration, St. James shares her creative journey. She is a popular keynote speaker, educator, and architectural designer who has garnered numerous awards, including a Coretta Scott King Award, a History Maker Award, and an honorary doctorate degree from St. Augustine's University. St. James also serves as a global ambassador for Susan G. Komen for the Cure's Circle of Promise. She joins us from her studio in Los Angeles. Welcome, Cynthia St. James. That's just amazing. When I hear all of those things that I've done, I don't even believe it. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Very Wonderful well. to be here, Peter. A great honor. Terrific. I'll jump right into it. One of the most striking traits in your paintings is that the figures are often shown without much facial detail. And I, as, as I understand it, that is not something you've always done. What drew you to this approach and what should the viewer take away from it? Okay. Well, um, my journey as a self-taught artist and within that journey, I wanted to know that I could create all aspects and not feel uh, there's something that I'm not doing because I can't. So in the 70s and early 80s, I actually um, had series on wild and domestic animals, uh, that their eyes hanging on a wall would stare at you no matter where you were in a room, animals would be looking at you. Mm. And I used to tell my friends that I knew I would never get robbed because they, it would scare a robber away with all these <laughs> tigers and lions and bears looking at them you know, from my walls. Um, I also painted children realistically, same effect with the eyes. Um, often the, the texture within the painting itself was reminiscent of the French Impressionists as well as being the realistic eyes. I see. Um, I see. So that was the journey. And once I knew I could do that, I continued to, to my career as I do and challenged myself with trying something new. You know, um, went to Martinique fell in love with the crowd scenes and decided that I wanted to uh, challenge myself to see if I create people without features and you'd feel them and you'd feel their energy, you'd feel their culture, you'd feel their mood. 
So right. body language. Right, right. Uh, talking about social groups and visiting Martinique. I've noticed that many of your paintings depict groups in social congregation, and oftentimes they're looking upwards or directly at one another or others in the group. Uh, two that come to mind are powerful YWCA, Greater Los Angeles, and women lifting their voices. Uh, what do you think is the significance of that? Well, in the very beginning, um, I didn't realize uh, that I was actually lifting the faces up. And a lot of times in the paintings, people were actually looking up. And then I, and then in a particular unveiling, I can't remember exactly where it was, someone asked me that question. Hmm. And that's when I realized I was doing it. So almost just very organically, I depict people with a very positive energy, a self-esteem, in a spiritual mm. inner being that looking up, you know, that uh, self-power and that yeah. uh, at the same time, the humility. And then the group scenes were just very interesting to me because it's almost like you're created a puzzle when you look at it later, but it's connecting bodies. Mm. Um, it's, so, it's almost like it's an unending uh, piece of work. I mean, everything, everyone is connected. So I think there's some, some, symbolism in, in that as well may not be atten- intentional but it's certainly mm. i'd like for people to take that away that's interesting yeah we did we've noticed that there's not a lot of space between any of the figures in, in in many of these paintings and is that is that has that always been the case no there's a quite a few paintings that i've actually painted only one person or two people mm-hmm. you know um just depending on what that theme was. I think I did that a lot when I was doing a series on the Black Indian. Um, yeah, there was definitely at times I was only depicting one person. But I, there's something very, uh, that draws me to crowd scenes, um, as well as very peaceful scenes, like one piece of mine, Slumber, is just a woman reclined on a very, with a very colorful quilt over her with just her little baby beside mm. her. Mm. Yeah. And, and there is something peaceful about uh, perhaps removing some of the facial details, removing the expressions, you kind of um, remove that from the equation. So it's also a void of uh, both um, uh, neither sadness or happiness, just sort of a, a bit of a, of a quiet space, I suppose. Yeah, well, there's a part too that I really want um, and realized it more in my children's picture books. I want people young and old children to seniors to be able to use their imagination and look at one of my painting and maybe see themselves or a friend or someone's child or a little boy might see his best friend or his sister and be able to use that imagination and, and create something out of that painting for themselves that's interesting really interesting um so i, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your other um, non, what we'd call non-traditional assignments, uh, and there are a number of them uh, during your career. Um, so among other things, you're well known for designing the first Kwanzaa stamp for the U.S. Postal Service. And as I understand, the first one had a circulation of some 320 million, which aside from being an astonishingly large number, maybe <laughs> want to ask you how you approach that project knowing you would have a big audience but only a small canvas to work on what was that like well first of all i had no idea that the stamp would ever become that popular um 
but it was actually one of the few stamps in, in our U.S. Postal Ser Service history, I'm sure, that became different denominations of stamps. So that stamp started out as a 32, became a 33, then a 34 cent stamp, and a 37 cent stamp, then they retired it. So that um, also um, is what is the popularity of it and, and why so mil many millions sold. Um, the hard part as an artist uh, in that particular assignment for stamps is that you actually have to paint the original painting around four and a half by five and a half inches, okay? And then you have to keep in mind wow. that there's gonna be, in that, uh, the 32 cents is going to be designed on there, including the word Kwanzaa. So you don't really have a lot of space, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it is extremely tiny. Right. Um, and it, one thing that comes to mind uh, is coming around to the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles for the evening celebration before first issue day of that stamp, and the Postal Service had enlarged it to 50 by 54 feet and it hung over the side of the natural history museum so wow. that was like amazing to see something that tiny that big that's really interesting and and we'll post all of these um images to the uh uh to the blog post version of this so people can 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 see them um let's let's go to another topic You've said your ethnic heritage, which is a mix of African-American, Native American, Haitian, and German-Jewish, plays a role in your work. And how would you describe its presence or its influence? I, I feel that, um, and I realize that a lot of the energy and a lot of the inspiration for my work has always been cultures of the world. Even before it was people or figurative, they were land and seascapes of different countries that I enjoyed painting. So I, I feel that that along with being self-taught, all of those different cultures within me are, are have fought and have gotten out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I think in, in most of them, like say in particular, the Haitian, African, and Native American, which is the tribe is Cherokee, mm. uh, those are all very bright, colorful people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's a whole, it's just part of the, the culture and those, all those cultures. Uh, some of my, my more quiet pieces probably come from my more German uh, Jewish side, you mm -hmm. know, because I've done pieces on that one particular I love called Prayer Shawl, and there's four men, you know, going to temple down the street and just flowing prayer shawls yes yes we'll 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 make sure we include that in um in in the in the blog as well um mm -hmm. what um uh, shifting gears again and and, and and on the international theme a little bit i've always been intrigued with the work you've done for u.s embassies around the world including the u.s embassies in ghana venezuela uh, and republic of congo uh, now, you got started with embassies as part of the Art in Embassies program, but you've since received direct requests from ambassadors wanting to include your work on their walls. Yes. What, what qualities do you think drew them or draws them to it, to your work? And what is it like knowing that one of your pieces hangs in an embassy? 
Well, well, that's an extreme honor if you know you can imagine that uh, you live one place, and your in your art is all over the world, and it's not just um, online; it's actually physically hanging in embassies that people in different countries, especially especially with cultural exchange, getting to see. I I know for a fact because of what some of my input has been often people are drawn to my art because my art is very bright very brightly mm. colored it's a very bright colorful canvas palette and it makes you feel happy i've been told that a mm. lot um mm. the colors alone and i actually paint six to ten coats of paint on each color so that's even more vivid mm. so that i must... think just as yeah just as a, as a child we're we're uh drawn to something bright mm. And you know, I, I imagine, I imagine it enhances the sort of governmental architecture that would be present in, in a lot of those spaces. Yeah, I think it warms it up, you mm -hmm. know, because it's it's government, and we tend to feel uncomfortable about, you know, strict government buildings and rules and laws, and then you walk in, and then there's bright paintings <laughs> right. that right. make you feel good and it relaxes you. Yes. Yes. Totally. Yeah. And now um, I wanted to shift a little bit to some of your um, some of your written work, um, and I'm just going to ask you to tell us about one one book that's special to you. Uh, just to note, as I noted in the introduction, you're the author of many, and I should say, really varied books. But tell us about one of them that's most special to you or important right now. Right now, it's living my dream uh, celebration of the 50th anniversary. And why that's important to me is because I believe it could be so helpful and inspirational for other creative people, not just uh, artists that are painters, but in all fields of creativity, because it's uh, it's just really very candid. Um, mm -hmm. It speaks of my beginnings um, and mistakes I've made as an artist and things mm -hmm. I've learned, the correct ways to do to approach galleries, and so it's a practical marketing side to it. Then there are affirmations um, included at the back that are for creative people to keep them uplifted every day about mm. what they do and what they're doing. Uh, so it's instructional. Um, mm -hmm. I'm more than willing to say my mistakes and figured out how I did that wrong. So sometimes <laughs> it's a little funny how I got through that. Um, but it's sharing my journey as an artist. That's, that's yeah. wonderful. And, and yeah. just uh, to that point, uh, to your journey, as I understand it, while you had just uh, two drawing classes growing up, one each in junior high school and high school, you had no real formal art training. No. And then the drawing classes, you really didn't learn how to draw. They were really electives. Hmm. So it's sort of an elective class where you got to go color or draw or paint or, you know, whatever the, what you choose uh, to do something, I guess, that kind of helps students with letting off steam. They get to do something that's not totally academic. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. So, yeah. so, can I, so I'd like to ask, you know, how did you develop your style and do you think your work developed differently because you didn't have a formal art degree? I'm certain that it, it definitely had its own very unique journey because I didn't, uh, I don't have an art degree and I didn't take art in, in high school, junior high school or college. 
it was all liberal arts. So yeah, it comes from more of not learned, but um, I think it comes from more inside. And I, I know for sure from speaking to other artists, friends of mine, that it was art for me was never a grade. Mm -hmm. See, and that grade often discourages artists to go on and they don't realize that's just one person's opinion, you mm -hmm. know, who happens to be the teacher of that class. And I don't believe art should have a grade. I think people should be able to take art courses and express their own individual creativity and just they pass or there's an incomplete. Yes, yes. Yeah. What would you, um, and then thinking about, so that's, that's great advice to the the art teachers of the world and the art ecologists of the world what advice would you give to young artists who may be deliberating about whether to attend art school themselves you know what that's a very personal choice i would say that in our world now because um when i was in uh, junior high school and high school that was in the 60s mm -hmm. uh there's a now uh, another practical side of art and very many um, available jobs or places that someone could go because of the computer generation. Mm. So, you know, it's saying that maybe when you, you, if you decide to go to art school, you take some of the practical parts too, like um, designing websites or designing software or just learning a little bit about that because that could be backup income while you pursue sure. your passion. And now you, you speak somewhat from experience here because your own career um, had gone in a number of directions um, and yes. could have gone in a number of directions, uh -huh. um, fine art to marketing to advertising. I believe you're even involved in the recording industry at one point. Yeah, I was, a, I was in a record business for years promoting um, a national promotion manager, all kinds of things like that, PR and oh my god and and publishing and some legal aspects and what was good about that job for me and the, the time and oh the energy i put into that it helped me to know what to do about myself mm. how to mm. promote myself how to do pr for myself how to write about myself as, as, as if i'm somebody else because <laughs> I used to write bios for a lot of the acts as they came out and were introduced to radio stations or just to the public and newspapers and um, journals. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's sort of like I learned how to promote and then I took that learning and used it to help promote my own art. And while you were doing some of the, that promotional work um, and really, really the marketing discipline, um, did you find itself it hard to remove yourself to create your own artwork during that period? Was it? Um, oh yes, that was the roughest period because I'm a person that gives at least 150 percent. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, my mind is focused on pushing a songwriter or a songer or a group. I'm doing that the whole week, it's in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I had to, um, when I moved uh, back to Los Angeles from New York in my early 20s, I ended up in a record business. When I came from New York, I was painting and had consistent commission work. And then suddenly for about a year and a half, hardly anything was happening because I was devoting all the time. Right. So I had to back out of that industry uh, mm -hmm. to get back to what you know what i needed to do 
as they learned that I could do more, they gave me more and more positions. (laughs) I came in in, um, as a receptionist and left as assistant general manager. (laughs) (laughs) What a wonderful story. In 18 months, okay? Wow. And and one of the hardest parts, uh, but kind of was funny, I was in charge of art and advertising. So I was the one that interviewed the photographers and the artists that were doing the album covers. Mm -hmm. But I never did an album cover. Interesting. That's so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about um, a little bit about Vita. Uh, You're, of course, you are a Vita artist. And I wanted to just ask specifically, what, what was it like to develop your own clothing line? And how has this experience impacted your art? Well, you know what? It's, it's, I'm like this. Let's put it like anything I can think of, like when my art ended up on the Metro Rail trains here that, you know, ran from downtown Los Angeles to Santa Monica Beach. And um, we did unveilings. My whole statement was then, was this, now I want an airplane. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when it ca- comes to Vita, I've always wanted to do clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, scarves, neckties, um, not just t-shirts, you know, things that people that are more considered um, more fashion rather than uh, a t-shirt, which is beautiful, but it's not fashion. Mm-hmm. So to be able to see my art on incredible bags and these very beautiful scarves, silk scarves and woolen scarves and on and on and on is mm-hmm. just amazing. and. I believe for me, a fact really is that I enjoy the fact that as an artist, you get to go on and design and put your art onto the garment the way you'd like it to be. So you're really designing the garment as well. So, you know, so I'm a fashion designer now. As you reflect a little bit back on your career, if you had to choose one day to, to relive or, or reponder, relive over and over, is there a particular day you would you'd, you'd harken back to and why? You know, I've been thinking about that. And there are just so many high points on, uh, that I never would have imagined that would happen, you mm-hmm. know, in my life. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of like I can list so many. I mean, um, and it's so hard to just choose one. So let me try to come up with what would I do? Well, well, first of all, I guess one, I, I'm going to say at least two. Okay. One would be being in a stretch limo with all of family and friends or who came from back east to come here to see the first day of issue. And we are driving and it's night and we drive around to park or be actually let out of the limo for the Natural History Museum. And as we turned the corner in bright spotlights was this 50 by 54 foot enlargement of my stamp. And I had no idea it was going to be there. That's incredible. Okay. The other side of that, the next morning, which is kind of like, I I think really took me off guard because in that particular morning, that same piece of art along the building was covered in a big red kind of material. So you couldn't really see the stamp Mm. until it was unveiled. But by the time it was unveiled and the whole program was over, I actually had three bodyguards to get me off the stage. Now that felt a little bit too much like a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> so that would, I wouldn't say that was one of my favorite 
part, but it did give me another dimension of what careers can be. But I could go back to selling my first painting, and, and that was something that will never uh, happen that way again. Uh, I was working as an accountant in New York for a mortgage insurance company, mm-hmm. and um, one of the lawyers, uh, one of our closers, commissioned me to do a piece, and back then it was abstract. It was in you know the late 60s. And bringing that painting back into my office with all those coworkers and them seeing it and the response and the fact that I was actually getting paid for something I love to do mm. that was um, close to the amount of one month's rent for me it was mm. amazing that, that you can make a living from what you love doing. That's validation, first time artists, you know, 20 years old. So nothing could ever be more. You were more. 20, wow. Yeah, nothing could ever be more amazing than that. That's incredible. Just conclude a little bit. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, uh, Cynthia St. James. This has been a pleasure. Uh, we, uh, we really enjoy having you um, not only um, as an artist on the site, but as a supporter of, of what Vita is trying to do. And we look forward to keeping the conversation going online and on our blog. Thank you so much, Cynthia St. James. And we hope to talk to you soon. Okay, and thank you so much, Peter. Well, that concludes the first episode of the Vita Podcast. We're looking forward to talking to more Vita artists and makers and getting their stories out there for the world to hear. Be sure to keep up with the podcast on our blog at blog.shopvita.com and on streaming services such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'd like to thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.